0: Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We are continuing uh, a little bit of a diversion from Daniel chapter 10. We'll talk more about that in a moment, Uh, but just to fill out and flesh out some of the things that are brought up in Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 11, as we consider the battle that's going on, heavenly battle between not only what's going on on earth, uh, those who are on the side of Christ against those who oppose it, but uh, the battle going on behind the scenes, the things that we cannot see, the battle going on in the invisible realm. And to sort of frame that for not only this morning, but Uh, The next couple of weeks, we want to look at Ephesians chapter 6. We'll read verses 10 through 13 this morning. And it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood... But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and, having done everything, to stand firm. So, again, I want to draw your attention in particular to verse 11, where we're told to put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Of the devil. Not a lot of talk about the devil from a biblical perspective in the world. People joke about the devil. People seem to have no problem with him. In many ways, they might even uh, semi-seriously or unseriously take the side of the devil. But he's not someone that people necessarily consider often and think of as someone that they need to be concerned about. Martin Luther knew better. He spoke about him in that famous song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And What did he say? For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. He knew that there is no enemy the Christian has who is stronger or more virulently opposed To us and to the gospel than Satan himself. This is why we need to understand what's going on with Satan, the ruler of the evil angels. We read in Daniel chapter 10 about the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, these uh, demonic powers that are behind some of these earthly empires. And before we get to specifically talking about demons and evil angels themselves in particular, we want to talk about the one who is the most powerful of all of them, the one who is in charge of all of them. And this is important because it helps us to have proper perspective in the Christian life. Um, there's a bit of an analogy that we could make about the way that we view the Christian life. We think of it something like uh, a sport like the game of golf. Maybe some of you have played golf before. Do you enjoy it? If you play it, sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, it's the kind of game that can be fun, but also very frustrating. Um, but basically, at its core, golf is a game where you are mostly dealing with your own abilities. It's uh, there are obstacles out there on the course. There are sand traps, there are trees, there's water, uh, there are hills, blind views, out-of-bounds areas, and probably a lot more other things that we can find if we hit our shots astray. But basically, when it comes to golf, it's you against the course. It's you yourself, and you're fighting against the obstacles that are in the way. And so even if you're competing with someone, you're not directly opposing them, you're just playing golf against the course, trying to get the best score that you can. This is how we often view the Christian life. Now, there is a a show that um, my kids, okay, actually I am interested as well in, that we watch sometimes at home. And they had an episode once that uh, featured what was called hybrid sports, where they take two sports and they combine them into one as part of this episode. One of these events goes by the name UFC Golf. UFC Golf. UFC golf. For those of you who aren't familiar with the acronym UFC, it stands for Ultimate Fighting Championship. And it features mixed martial arts that takes place inside of a cage. So you can imagine what happens when you combine this with golf. In this particular episode, took two players out on a golf course, put them in pads, and had the following challenge. Hit the ball from tee to green, while your opponent has the right to come after you and maul you in the process. And you try to get the ball into the hole within the three one-minute rounds with your opponent trying to stop you with everything they have. Well, you can imagine that getting the ball in the hole in UFC golf is a little bit more difficult than getting the ball in the hole in regular golf. And so it turned out for the competitors who had to fend off tackles and punches in pursuit of putting the ball in the cup. But that's just the reality of having someone going against you in the sport that you're playing. And so when it comes to our Christian life, we're tempted to think about it as just like a round of golf, us against the course. It's us against temptation. It's us against, you know, the things that we come to in life, the difficulties that we have, you know, our own weaknesses. And it's kind of just about growing ourselves. Um, No matter how well you do on a particular day, there's probably still room for improvement. And yeah, you might even be playing against other people, although in the Christian life, you're not really, but maybe you can grow in godliness in a way that is, uh, you know, someone would look and say, you're, you should, you're further along than this person or you're not as far along as this person. I mean, there could be some of that, but at the end of the day, it's basically you against the course, trying to shoot the best score you can. That's the way that we view the Christian life. When in reality, our Christian life is a little bit more like this UFC golf. We're not just playing against the course we're not just trying to overcome our own problems but we have someone opposing us actively the only problem is we don't see him so we often forget about him but nonetheless he is out to take us down and that is satan himself he has schemes he has devices he tries to take us out Now, the main way that he works, as we'll see, is by deception. And this makes it all the more important that we are aware of his presence, aware of his activity, uh, aware of the ways that he works, because if we don't, then we will tend not to even think about him. He wants to deceive us into thinking that he's not involved or into thinking that what we're doing is fine. So understanding that he deceives his work is not always going to be particularly obvious or straightforward and we have to give all the more attention to understanding how he works so as we consider the place of angels and our involvement with them and of demons or evil angels that we are fighting against as well we need to make sure that we consider the ruler of those evil angels which is the devil himself now again we're here because of Daniel chapter 10 and uh, Daniel 10 presents uh, the fact that there are some angels who are behind the scenes and it appears that they are battling as well. They're battling each other which raises the question of what is the place of warfare, spiritual warfare in the Christian life and in particular about angels and demons in the relationship that we should have to them. Uh, and we're going to talk about that here in a couple of Sundays from now. But before we do this, we need to make sure that we talk about the army of demons and this the angel army on the side of evil, which we'll do next time. But for this morning, we want to understand what their commander-in-chief is like. We want to understand what Satan himself is like so that we can know what he's after and we can understand just what's at stake and what we are up against in this battle as we pursue fighting in the Christian life. So we're considering for this morning Satan, who we will call our hostile adversary. Our hostile adversary, or as Martin Luther called him, our ancient foe who doth try to work us woe. He is against us in every way, and we want to understand him so that we can be protected. We're going to begin this morning by just looking briefly at Satan's attributes, At Satan's attributes, what is he like? And his origin and nature is the first thing to consider, his origin and nature. Now, like everything else in the universe, he was created as good, and he is a created being. He has not always been around. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so it's true that even though we often uh, rightly understand that we are either children of God or children of the devil, as we'll talk about later, that doesn't mean that God and the devil are on equal footing. It doesn't mean that there is this cosmic equality between the two where only one is good and one is bad, but otherwise they are on the same plane or of the same nature. They are not. Satan is a created being as opposed to the Trinity, as opposed to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, at some point, Satan rebelled against God. Otherwise, he would not have been able to, he would not be doing evil. Uh, This may be described in a passage that some of you have read in Ezekiel 28, where it's speaking to the king of Tyre and perhaps through the king of Tyre to Satan himself, who uh, was in the Garden of Eden tempting Adam and Eve and who was made very powerful, which is why he has the great power that he does today, and yet who Uh, in his pride, rebelled against God. He did rebel against him despite being created good as everything was. God looked at what he had made and it was, Genesis 1, very good. He is created. He rebelled against God. He is a spirit being as well, just as all of the other angels are. His names, you know some of them, but I'll just read a list. Satan, the devil, the dragon... The serpent, Beelzebub, the adversary, the accuser, the evil one. Uh, He is called the ruler of this world or the God of this world. He is called the tempter. He is the ruler of all the evil demons. He is our number one enemy. What then is he like? Well, his character is what we will consider next. His character and fundamentally, What he is, is an evil, lying murderer. John 8, 44, Jesus tells these unbelieving Jews there, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar And the father of lies. These two aspects of his character, his murdering and his lying, make him what he is. He wants to harm people, and he will be completely unconcerned for the truthfulness of what he says in order to bring about that goal. He is hostile in every way. Truth doesn't matter to him at all. This is what his character is like. He is completely evil. He is the father of these things. And he is at the root of why evil exists and of why people do evil in the world at all. That's how bad his character is. And then, of course, number four, his location. Where is he? Well, 1 Peter chapter 5 says that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In Job chapter 1 and 2, we find him in the presence of the Lord, saying that he has come from going to and fro on the earth. So there is uh, an ability that he has to go sort of back and forth from the heavenly realm to in some way uh, moving around on the earth. He even made himself directly present in some way in the desert in Matthew chapter 4. And other accounts to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is not constrained to either heaven or earth. And he is able to um, make his presence be in any particular place. He is not omnipresent as God is. But it seems that he can get just about anywhere that he wants to go. And evidently can do so pretty quickly Sometimes he is even said to have a certain focused home. In Revelation 2.13, it says that the place there is where Satan dwells, which most likely simply speaks of his influence and upon the prevalence of his influence there in that particular city. So he can go anywhere, even if he is not everywhere. He is evil, and uh, even though he was made good and very powerful, he now uses that against God and against his people. And that's what we'll consider next. What does he do? What does this evil one do? Satan's activities is the next thing to consider. Satan's activities. Uh, The first thing that he does, and fundamentally, he opposes God's purpose and God's people. He opposes God's purposes and God's people. This is why he is called the adversary or the enemy. A few specifics on this. He opposes God. He opposes God, he tries to steal the glory for himself. What did he do when he was tempted in the desert in Matthew chapter four? When Jesus was tempted, he tried to get Jesus to do what? Bow down and worship him, to worship Satan. He tries to steal that glory. He tries to exalt himself as the one who really knows things. In Genesis chapter three, he tempts Adam and Eve and he goes specifically to Eve and he says, God is holding something back from you but I'm the one who really knows. I know the truth and I'm out for your good. And if you just eat from this tree, then you're gonna have what God is keeping away from you. He's trying to put himself in the place of God. And so he opposes God and the glorification of God, instead trying to take it for himself. Um, Secondly, he opposes Adam and Eve, or he opposed Adam and Eve. Let's read this in Genesis chapter three. If you'd like to look there, Genesis chapter three, starting in verse one. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. By the way, if you're wondering how we can know that this is Satan, Revelation 12 makes this very direct, that he is the serpent of old, when it refers to him, Satan, the dragon, or the serpent of old. So it is very clear that that he is the one who is described here. Uh, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And you see her response. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Here, he challenges the word of God. He questions the word of God Has God really said this? And then when she says, Yes, he said this, Satan says, Well, that actually is not true. He deceives her. He says, you surely will not die. Verse 4, God says you'll die, but I'm telling you, you won't. For God knows the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you're going to be like him. God is holding something back from you. He is holding back from you the knowledge of good and evil. He is holding back from you true wisdom. Of course, we know from elsewhere in scripture that true wisdom is gained not by eating from the fruit of a tree or by disobeying God and trying to get the knowledge this other way but by the fear of the Lord Job 28 and Proverbs 1 make this clear the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom this is to turn away from evil that is understanding but he opposed them and he tricked them so that they would fall into sin he went after the very first people and wrecked the human race in terms of morality except for the fact that Christ came to redeem us. So he opposed God, he opposes God, he opposed Adam and Eve right from the beginning, he went against humanity. Um, A third entity that he opposes is Israel. He opposes Israel. 1 Chronicles 21.1 says that Satan moved David to number the people of Israel. In his pride, David sought to number and to count how many people were there in Israel? There's nothing wrong with his census in and of itself, but David was glorying in that as if he was the one who was responsible for this. Daniel 10, verse 13, 20, and 21, which we have looked at in our study of the book of Daniel, uh, we read about angelic opposition to Israel. And it says that uh, in Daniel 10:21. There is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Michael being the prince of Israel. And uh, it says that at the end time in Daniel 12, 1, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. Uh, We read in Revelation 12 that, Michael has to do this. He has to protect them. And there's war between Satan and his angels on the one hand. And then Michael and his angels on the other hand. And specifically Satan is coming after the nation of Israel. So he is opposed to them. He is opposed to them. Number four or letter D I suppose. He opposes Christ. He opposes Christ. We have a picture of this in Revelation 12.4. The dragon stood before the woman, this picture of Israel who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child, trying to kill her. We see this played out in Matthew chapter two, don't we? When Herod persecutes Jesus and tries to kill him, the newborn king. Matthew chapter four, verse one, Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He tried to get Jesus to sin. And then, When he couldn't do that, toward the end of Jesus' life, he is the one who entered Judas, the disciple, the betrayer, to betray and hand over Jesus. John 13, 27 says that Satan entered into Judas. He is hostile to Christ to the point of entering into a disciple to betray him and have him executed. This is how much he hates him. Accordingly, not only does he hate God's appointed king, but he also opposes God's kingdom he opposes God's kingdom He is the one behind the forces of these opposing Gentile powers. The prince of Persia in Daniel 10, the prince of Greece in Daniel 10 that we looked at when studying that a few weeks ago. He is the one who is empowering them or behind them or in charge of the evil angels or the demons that are empowering and somehow helping those kingdoms. Those that are opposing not only Israel but also the ultimate kingdom of God. We learn in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, that he empowers the one who ultimately is against Christ and against the kingdom of Christ, known as Antichrist. Revelation 13, 2. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And then in verse 4 they worship the dragon the whole world because he gave his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him. So you have this ultimate gentile ruler the the epitome of man's opposition to God in earthly kingdoms against the kingdom of God fighting against that against God. And he is empowered not by his own upbringing or his own human devices, but by none other than Satan himself. Satan is hostile toward God's kingdom. He doesn't just oppose Jesus and his redemption, he wants God's kingdom to not happen and to take place. He is opposed to that. And so he empowers the ultimate human ruler against it. He even goes so far as to oppose God after he's been thrown into the abyss. For a thousand years in Revelation 20, he still makes war against the saints. Another thing he opposes is gospel ministry and the spread of the word of God. We read in 1 Thessalonians 2... Verses 17 and 18, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're trying to go back to Thessalonica to to try to strengthen and and stabilize the faith of the Thessalonians. And he says this, uh, verse 18, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. He doesn't say how that happened. He just recognizes they couldn't get back and there was something that was keeping that from happening. And he says Satan prevented us from coming back to you he was against your growth and stability in the faith and in chapter uh, 3 of that same book he is afraid that the tempter might have tempted them and their labor would be in vain he didn't want that in 1st Thessalonians 3 5 in the parable of the sower there are four places where seed is sown The word of God is thrown into these different receptive or non-receptive kinds of hearts. And in Matthew 13, 19, he says that the one who hears the word but doesn't understand it, that is where the enemy has come and snatched the word out of their heart. He keeps people from understanding it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he has this impact upon really the whole unbelieving world. And it says in verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image, excuse me, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He does not want gospel ministry to take place. This is going to be important when we come back to think about what spiritual warfare really entails Ephesians 6 is going to talk about this idea and why we need to be prepared for Satan's attacks. And it's not just because we're standing around as innocent targets doing nothing but being Christians and Satan wants to come after us. But when we try to do ministry of the word of God and gospel ministry, we're going to be invading somewhere that he doesn't want us to come. And he's gonna do everything that he can to prevent the word of God from taking effect. Unsurprisingly then, one more thing that he opposes is believers. Quite simply, just believers. 1 Peter 5.8 refers to him as your adversary, the devil. 1 Timothy 5.14 calls him the enemy. In Luke 22.31 Jesus says that Satan has asked permission to sift the disciples like wheat. And uh, He actually gives permission, amazingly, for that to take place. And then, of course, Ephesians chapter 6, we learned that we have to stand firm against his schemes. So he opposes everything that God loves, everything that God is about. We should not just wander into trying to do what God wants and trying to fulfill God's purposes for us in the world and think that it's going to be easy and think that we can just waltz through it. We have a hostile opponent as we do this, and we need to be prepared, and we need to buckle down, and we need to be strengthened in God's power. What else does he do besides opposing God's purposes and God's people? Well, he exercises dominion. He exercises dominion over the unbelieving world. He exercises dominion over really the whole unbelieving world. Acts 26 18 says, when people come to faith in Christ, it's described this way, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. From the dominion of Satan to God. Colossians 1.13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And First John 5.19 says, we know that the whole world... The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John 12.31 calls him the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God of this world. Ephesians 2.2 2 refers to him as the, the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Revelation 12.9 says that he deceives the whole world. It's a lot of power. And of course, the whole world who is under his grip would laugh at the idea that they're under Satan's power. Of course they would. They're under his power. They're blinded by him. They don't even know. And so until they escape from that, they won't be able to see that clearly. But they are under the rule and the power of the evil one. This doesn't get rid of God's rule. It just simply means that the dominating force in their life is that of Satan being the one who has blinded them to the point where unbelievers are referred to specifically as children of the devil John 8:44 Jesus says you are of your father the devil We like the places in the Bible that refer to us as God's children not many people outside of Christ like to be called sons of the devil And yet this is what we all are apart from Christ. This is why we need salvation. Because we are by nature those who are hostile toward others. Those who aren't concerned about the truth. Except so far as it benefits us to keep our conscience clean or to advance us in the world. Or maybe give us enough self-righteousness to where we think we can get into heaven. But this is who we are. This is why we need redemption. Jesus came, 1 John says, to destroy the works of the devil. He has everyone outside of Christ under his grip. And if you aren't in Christ yourself and you're here today, you are, despite as difficult as it may be to say, under the power of the devil. You are under his rule, under his domain. You are part of the dominion of Satan. You are under the rule and the domain of darkness. And you need to be rescued. And you need your eyes open. And you need to put your hope in Christ. Because that's the only way of escape. And it is... The effective way of escape. To believe in Christ's saving work of redemption on the cross. His death and his resurrection. This is what saves and forgives your sins and changes your heart. So that you're no longer a slave of the devil. But instead now you've been freed to serve Jesus Christ. He exercises dominion over the unbelieving world. Behind the scenes he rules the fallen evil angels. He rules the fallen evil angels. Matthew 12 24 The Pharisees referred to uh, this idea of the ruler of the demons. They blasphemed the spirit of God in so doing because they said that Jesus was casting out demons by the ruler of the demons. And instead of saying that the power of the Holy Spirit is what did this, they said it was the power of Satan. But nonetheless, this concept of a ruler of the demons is true. There is such a one and it is Satan himself. Revelation 12, 7 speaks of the dragon and his angels. The angels that belong to him that he is over, waging war against Michael and his angels. And so he rules the fallen evil angels. We will talk more about them in a study to come. Another thing that he does is he causes some physical affliction. He causes some physical affliction. And this can be both toward believers and toward unbelievers now the reason why I say some is because for one he is not always able to do this when we read in the book of Job about Satan's affliction of Job we understand that Satan was very frustrated because God had put what is known as a hedge around him he had protected him this picture that he wouldn't allow him to come. And it was like there was a fence around Job. You couldn't get to him. And Satan says, yeah, that, you know, that's, why, that's why he serves you. Because you won't let me after him. But if you remove that and let me afflict him, well, then he's going to turn from you. Satan turned out to be wrong. Um, but when God did give him permission, Job was greatly, really awfully afflicted. By the devil, the devil was able to bring upon physical suffering and pain upon him. Um, much that went on was in the realm of what we would even refer to as uh, uh, supernatural miracles, or at least just uh, very, very extreme coincidences that can only be explained by the fact that Satan was making sure that it happened. He is very powerful and can, when God permits, bring about physical affliction even among God's most most faithful servants. At the same time, not all physical affliction is directly from him. And there's no reason when we are afflicted that we should presume that this is the devil doing this. Now, in one sense, all suffering comes as a ripple effect of the work of Satan, who opposed Eve and Adam in the garden. And because of the fall into sin. And the curse upon the world. There is now suffering. Apart from Satan's work. Apart from his temptation. His successful work. Toward our first parents. There would be no suffering. And yet there is because of him. And yet when we are sick. When we uh, have an injury of some kind. When something wrong is going on physically. We don't attribute this to the devil. As if we know that this is the case. Even Job only ultimately would know because of what would be revealed to him from god we only know that the suffering came from the devil because it's written in the bible and in fact job was tempted to take this as from god and this is the way that people around him saw it so we should be slow to attribute things to the devil while also understanding that he does have the capacity To cause some physical affliction. And that ultimately all physical affliction is the indirect result of what Satan did from the beginning. Now, what does he do specifically toward Christians? I want to consider Satan's attacks. Satan's attacks. This is so we know what he is trying to do toward us. And we read in Ephesians chapter 6 about this specific kind of attack it says that we need to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil 2nd Corinthians twelve eleven also refers to the idea of schemes they are two different underlying words but it signifies the idea that the devil plots and plans and he has a strategy and tactics that he tries to carry out and he is active in doing this he is trying to take us down He is trying to come after us this is not just something that is a hobby for him this is what he is about so what does he do toward christians what are his attacks first of all he persecutes christians he persecutes christians he makes sure that this happens revelation two ten. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Satan is able to so arrange circumstances that Christians are persecuted in some way or another. Satan is behind this persecution and we need to recognize that he does this. Secondly, he accuses... Christians. He accuses Christians. In Job 1, he slanders Job and says, Does he serve you, God, for nothing? Doesn't he do this because you've been so gracious to him? Doesn't he do this because you've given him so much? And he attacks him. He attacks him. And then in Revelation 12 10, he is called the accuser of our brethren. And it says that he accuses them before our God day and night. He accuses us of our guilt. He accuses us of not being worthy to be in the presence of God. And, you know, we look and we say, you know what? You're right. We are not worthy of it. But Christ has redeemed us. And he is the one who is our propitiation. He is the one who has paid our debt. Because Christ intercedes for us, we are able to go before God. And we're able to stand before God, though we would be rightly accused and say, God, you have done the work to make the way for us to come to you. So we find in 1 John chapter 2, these wonderful words. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. And he he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only. But also for those of the whole world. This is uh, what we sing about, isn't it? When Satan tempts me to despair. And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. This is what Christ did for us. Satan accuses us. But Christ redeems us and tells us your sin is paid for. You can stand in the presence of a holy God. Satan then tries to not only come after us physically or try to make us think that uh, we are guilty, even though as Christians we have been forgiven, but he then tries to get us to sin. And he does so in two main ways. First of all, he tempts Christians. He tempts us. In Genesis 3... He tempted Adam and Eve to eat what God had forbidden. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, he tempts toward immorality. He tempts through bitterness and unforgiveness. Ephesians 4, 27 says, don't give the devil an opportunity. Look over with me, if you would, in 2 Corinthians 2 for a moment. I want you to see something that we may not think about in terms of satanic attacks, but... This is the way Paul sees it. In Second Corinthians 2, you have someone who has committed uh, some kind of great sin, may even be the person from 1 Corinthians 5 who had to be removed from the church It says, 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Here's one who has sinned and faced the right consequences for it. And the people in the church have brought this about. And yet now evidently there's been repentance. And he says, don't just keep putting the weight on him. Instead, you need to make sure that he knows not only that he has been forgiven, but also that you love him. I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. This is really important to Paul. He says, For this end I also, also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things, uh, previously writing to them. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes, in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. You see here that there is a danger that the church will not forgive or even that Paul would not forgive and that there would be division among the body. And he sees this as an opportunity for Satan to take advantage of. We don't think of unity and love for one another in these terms often enough. We don't think about them necessarily as something that gives Satan a way in. And yet this is exactly what he says. If we are aware of his schemes and his desire to rip apart the church and to make things look bad, then he is going to tempt us to not forgive, to be divided, to not love one another. Remember, this is a context where Paul is not minimizing sin in any way at all. He's already dealt with it. So he's not saying just overlook everything and never deal with anything. What he is saying is when it has been properly dealt with, at the same time, you need to make sure that you are very careful to fully forgive, to fully affirm your love for one another and to be united together. Satan can tempt Christians though, to be unforgiving, to be bitter. There may be people where you find yourself in that situation right now, where you are hostile towards someone in your mind. You have not forgiven them. They do not know that you love them and you need to address that because you are giving Satan an opportunity In Acts 5, Satan is said to have filled Ananias and Sapphira's heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. That's how evil of a deed this was, that they did exactly what he would want them to do. He is so prone to work by temptation that 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul refers to him as the tempter, as a stand-in for even having to say his name. And, of course, in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, he tries to devour believers. And this doesn't really so much refer to circumstances of suffering, although he can bring that about, but to the temptation that he tries to bring to them. Satan tempts Christians. And then, fourthly, he tries to deceive Christians. He not only tempts us by putting things out there that are... um, appealing to us and enticing to us, but he also tries to confuse us about what those things are. He tries to make them look like something that they're not or to not look like something that they are. In Genesis chapter 3, he deceived Eve. And Second Corinthians 11 tells us that he did that by his craftiness. He was smart about it. He did it shrewdly. He tries to deceive people into... All kinds of trouble. 1 Timothy 4.1 talks about deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons that will cause, that will cause many to fall away from the faith. Is the way that Paul puts it there. First 1 Kings 22, there is a lying spirit that goes out into a prophet to deceive Ahab into going into battle when the outcome is going to be bad for him. How does he do these things? How does he deceive us? Well, perhaps he causes direct circumstances at times. There is nothing in scripture to indicate that he directly puts thoughts into our minds. We should not think that that's the case if scripture doesn't tell us that he he does this. He does seem to influence in some way demonic false teachers though and those false teachers then teach deceptive doctrines. False teachers, false prophets over and over again are warned about in the scriptures and Satan is behind these. And so the major thing that deceives us is false doctrine. It is false doctrine. Now certainly open sin And the kinds of things that the world promotes and the kinds of things that are spoken of openly by people who just don't care about Christ at all can bring a large temptation even to people who know and love Jesus Christ. Those things can be tempting. And in fact, we read about this in Psalm 73 where the psalmist is tempted and he says, I I almost despaired and, and I almost stumbled because I was envious of the wicked. Their life is easy. They've got all these things, and they're not in pain like me. They don't have to suffer the way that I am. And I almost stumbled until I thought about their end and what would happen as a consequence for what they did. But but even he was tempted by that. So we can be tempted by the sort of open sin and the just the, the lifestyle of godlessness that's out there. That is possible. But there is another kind of temptation that is also there for the Christian that's more subtle and perhaps in many ways more dangerous because it's harder to identify and it can lead us away from Christ when we don't even expect it so in 2 Corinthians 11 I mentioned this earlier Paul writes about something that he is afraid of which is striking because Paul is not afraid of much but he says in First, uh, second Corinthians 11 3 but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ I- I'm worried about this the issue was what they believed to be true your minds being led astray that was his concern it wasn't so much about their suffering although he didn't really want that he was somebody that that healed people when they were sick and he had the ability to do that but he was concerned about their minds what do they think what do they believe and here's how he, he expresses they're being led astray he doesn't say that you're going to be led into open flagrant denial of religion or even of the gospel instead he says verse four for if one comes and preaches another jesus whom we have not preached or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. What did they receive? Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. This sounds a lot like the actual gospel and Jesus and spirit that they actually had received in the first place. It still has all those concepts there. But it's different. It's adjusted. It's altered. And so it's entirely other from what they have believed. One of the great attacks of Satan upon Christians is to get them to believe something that can still look like Christianity or call itself Christianity, but it's not. It can be a gospel that demands no repentance. It simply says, come to Jesus and have your sins forgiven, but you don't have to worry about giving up your sin. You can worry about that later. You can worry about that later. Or a works-based system which says that you have Jesus, but you just kind of need to add some things yourself. You know, what Jesus did is not quite enough. You need to believe in Jesus, but then you also need Jesus to empower you to do righteous things so that you can earn your way into heaven, that kind of thing. A slightly different view of Jesus. You know, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but uh, we don't believe that he's God. We don't have to, because we believe in Jesus, right? It's the same guy, but it's a different gospel. It's a different Jesus. Or a Jesus who is not coming primarily to solve your sin problem, but to solve your problems problem. Whatever you need Jesus to do for you. Oh, he's still Jesus and you're still going to exalt him above all because he is greater than everything. But it's not the same Jesus of the Bible who came as a savior for sinners. Who didn't come to save you from a life of meaninglessness. Or didn't come to help you to improve your circumstances. Though sometimes that may happen as a byproduct of not doing so many ungodly things. That's not why Jesus came. Or a Jesus that makes you feel good. Jesus that gives you warm fuzzies and gives you an emotional lift every time you sing to him. But does he change your heart? Does he pay for your sins? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Jesus is there with me. He's in me. You know, he's my my friend. And so there are these slight alterations to the gospel that Paul says, I'm afraid these things are going to draw you astray. Satan does this. He deceives. And that's not to mention all the individual sins that he tempts us with by deceiving us about the nature of them. You know, everybody else is doing these things. Or it's not really that bad. Or that was just a cultural thing back in the Bible times. But now we know better. False doctrine. Doctrines of demons. Again, 1 Timothy 4.1. And thus Satan tricks us and traps us. 1 Timothy 3, 7 and 2, 26 refer to the devil having a snare. He catches us unawares, unsuspecting. And he does so by doing what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, later in the chapter. Verse 14, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. These are nice people preaching about Jesus. These are good moral people. What could be wrong about what they're saying? Paul says, only everything, including the one behind them. Thankfully, We uh, look at Satan and, you know, there's many times we look at things in the world and we just say, I can't believe they're getting away with that. Can't believe they're getting away with it. Not so, thankfully, for him. Because one day, he will pay. Satan's accounting is the final point about him to consider. Satan's accounting. First of all, he stands condemned. He stands condemned john 16 11, the ruler of this world has been judged that is the verdict he is guilty jesus came first john 3 8 to destroy the works of the devil there is more that jesus does than that but certainly not less And hebrews two fourteen and 15 says that by jesus death he took away him who had the power of death that is the devil satan stands condemned and he is a walking dead angel Secondly, he will one day be bound. He will be bound. Revelation 20 tells us about this. Christ returns to earth, Revelation 19. And in Revelation 20, verse 3, verses, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Here Satan during this thousand years or millennium is um, prevented from being able to do what he has done for so long and what he is doing right now, which is to deceive the nations And yet he will be released for a short time. Revelation 20 starting in verse 7 says, When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And then we see that he is defeated. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. He will one day not only be bound, but then punished. He will be punished. In fact, this has been prepared specifically for Satan and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. We have a promise, a wonderful promise in Romans 16, verse 20. You know what it says, right? The God of peace will. Soon crush Satan Underneath your feet What a wonderful fulfillment Of the promise in Genesis 3 That there would be a a Serpent crusher And that ultimately even believers will get to take part in that And so we sing Again with Martin Luther The prince of darkness grim We tremble not For him his rage we can endure Why? For lo his doom is sure One little word shall fell him. This is what's happening to him. We'll talk more about our responses in the weeks to come, but there are four I want to give you. Four responses Be aware of his schemes, know how he works, think about how he works, study the scripture to know how he operates, be aware of his schemes. Secondly, know and believe the truth of God. Know and believe the truth of God. You need to understand your position in Christ as accepted by God. You need to know and believe the truth of God so that you can discern truth from error and stand firm against temptation just as Jesus did in the desert. Thirdly, be alert. Be alert because as 1 Peter 5 says, he is looking for someone to devour. And then fourthly, resist him. That's what 1 Peter 5 goes on to say. Resist him. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will do what? Flee from you. Imagine this powerful one is him running away if we but resist him. And that doesn't mean we rebuke him and talk trash to him. What that means is we fight by virtue of obedience to the scripture. We believe what God says and we fight back against the temptation. And when we resist, he will flee. Much more on this, the armor of God. Coming up a couple weeks from now in Ephesians chapter 6 for this morning, we can be thankful for what God promises, but we need to fight in the meantime against this evil one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, which tells us what we would not know about this one who we can't see, but who influences so much. May we not overestimate or underestimate his power. May we resist him, and may you give us strength to do so. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.